0: him that he must be born again and Nicodemus doesn't understand that and he talks about the difference between flesh and spirit and it always helps I think for you and me even though we're familiar with the scripture to be reminded of of what it's really saying Uh, Christ talks about those that are born of the flesh or flesh. Well, that's us. We're born of the flesh. Uh, Nowhere else that we know of does that occur. Everyone else is in spirit form that we know of. But we were born of the flesh uh, upon uh, the advent of sin in Adam. Um, In fact, there's an interesting scripture I'm digressing, but there's an interesting scripture in Genesis 5. Remember in Genesis um, 1, as you turn to Genesis 5. um, Hi, Becky. Uh, In verse 27 of Genesis 1, God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he, him, but once sin hit, then those whom Adam and Eve created were no longer created in the image of God. Um, Chapter 5, we'll start with verse 2. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called him Seth. So Adam birthed a male child after Adam's image. the the image of God had so been ruptured and the spirit of man so dead. You know, the spirit in man, God's spirit in man was dead. And so it was not capable of creating anything after the image of God. So with sin came man being born after the image of man of the flesh. So you go over to John 3 and Christ says, "Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You've been born of the flesh. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh." Implication, the spirit is dead. If you eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. The spirit died. And yet, it somehow was still living. That's that strange conundrum that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer references. Dead, but acting as though alive. And so he, he goes into this with Nicodemus. He is he's doing a revolutionary uh, jab into his mindset. Because Nicodemus came from the, the elite privileged line. He was part of the ruling Sanhedrin. Uh, his lineage, his Jewish line, had gotten him to the power pinnacle in the Jewish culture. And the Jewish line was the line that would, was God's people. So his whole mindset, Nicodemus's, was he was born into, in a sense, salvation. He was born into the messianic culture. And so Jesus, unlike another rich man that came to him, who had many possessions, he didn't tell that rich man you had to be born again. That rich man had a problem with possessions. This rich man had a problem with privilege, with that prideful sense of entitlement because they were born into it. They were entitled to uh, God and all that God wanted to give. So Jesus talks to him here and he says in verse six, or I'll start with verse five, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be born again. Flesh birth will not get you anywhere, Nicodemus. Even if you were born into the elite line of the Jewish culture, it still is nothing because there are two opposite opposing poles here. One is flesh, which is where you're coming from. The other is spirit, and they are opposites. So he says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit, is spirit. You must be born again. So our second birth revolutionizes us. Here's the revolutionary speaking of his revolution. Though we look flesh, we are simply clothed in flesh. Before we're born again, we are flesh that down in the deep innermost reaches of our being, there is a spirit. There's a human spirit. It's an eternal spirit. And that's the only thing living about it is still eternal. It has capacity to have relationship with the eternal spirit of God. It has capacity for that. But it is dead because God's spirit is removed from it. It cannot have life without God's Spirit infusing it with life. So when we are born again, our spirit invites the spirit of God in to merge and seal and marry his spirit with our spirit so that it is totally one. Now, when that happens, this is the revolution. We no longer are flesh beings with a spirit we are now spirit beings clothed with a fleshly garment we have been turned inside out now because we struggle so long in our lives with the flesh warring against the spirit and the spirit warring against the flesh that's a hard reality to sink in to us you think okay I don't feel spirit I act more flesh. That's the journey. That's the warfare that the minute you and I become a Christian gets set up in us that the world does not have. The world does not have that warfare. That's alluded to, not alluded to, mentioned in Romans 8 and in Galatians 5, where the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh so that you cannot do what you want to do so that you're immobilized. So our journey is to let the reality get worked out in our flesh so that the spirit will take over more and more and more of our lives, more and more and more of our souls, so that we really are living in the spirit. And he he says in Galatians 5, uh, 22 through 25, the end of it, I think it's the last verse there. So then if we live in the spirit, which is what we do when we accept Christ as our savior, we become spirit. So we live in the spirit. He says, "Then let us also walk in the spirit." Let us also work this out so that not just God knows that we are spirit, that the world can know that we walk in the spirit. We live in the spirit. We pray in the spirit. So <clears throat> it is this spirit that seeks to dominate our soul that Christ is referencing in a sense when he says, in your patience, in your enduring, keeping on, keeping on approach, possess ye you your souls. It's not us possessing our souls so much as it is is the Spirit of Christ possessing our souls. That's our journey. And most of us as Christians, I mean, most Christians out there don't really embark on this journey. They get saved, and they try to do the best they can, sort of, when when it's convenient and when it serves them and when they feel like it. But the great revolution comes when God can find those willing souls who are willing to say, yes, I will pick up the cross here and follow. I will deny self. See, our role in this is the denial of self. We cannot slay self. You know, self can no more commit suicide then anger can slay anger. It is absolutely diametrically opposed to self. Self's whole operating premise is existence and expression and self-defense and self-promotion. It's like pride deciding to be humble. Pride can't decide to be humble. Pride is pride. And anger is anger, and anger can't decide to not be angry anymore. Anger is that. Self is self-promoting. What we can do in the power of the Spirit is to embark on a journey of denying self. We won't do that perfectly. But that's our role. So when there are things that come up in your life and mine where we're wrestling, we know we ought to do this, but we don't want to do it because it's uncomfortable, inconvenient. That's where we have our options, to vote against ourselves, deny self. And then on that journey of one who denies self, takes up their cross, and follows Christ, where would one be going who is bearing a cross and following Christ? Where are they headed? Calvary. But we can't put ourselves up on the cross, only the Lord can do that. Only the Lord can crucify self. Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It's an exchanged life here. We can expect it to be Pardon me? We can expect it to be painful. <laughs> Yes, we can expect it to be painful. And in a culture that flees discomfort and embraces the prosperity message, and um, that doesn't resonate. But it is for a greater joy and a greater blessing and a greater abundance that comes to us. This self-promotion thing that is painful when we're in the dying process, or even in the self-denial process, ultimately leads to the greatest of all blessings and in, in this in our lives. And so we have joy, which replaces the pursuit of happiness. We have peace, which replaces our pursuit of security. You see, the counterfeit there is what appeals to us. But The real thing far surpasses that. Patty, were you wanting to say something? It does, and and I think you've absolutely spoken true. um, That that warfare is what, and I'm repeating that so it will pick up on the tape, that that warfare is what the world sees as our hypocrisy and as a detriment to our witness, I do think beyond that, the next step, is that in this warfare, if we would be authentic, if we would have humility in the midst of the warfare, the the world's likely to see our humility. I think the problem with the hypocrisy is when We come up and we confront this world from a self-righteous position, from a position where we're condemning them, whoever them is, the the them out there, the world out there. You don't see Christ doing that. It it boggles my mind, and I'm still wrestling with how how to fit all this in because we do need to confront those things that are wrong. But where Christ condemned was with the, quote, Christian community. I'm using that broad brush. He condemned the Christian community. And I, I hope people understand what I'm, I I'm mean. That the Christian community didn't exist, but the church community did. So it's the equivalent today to the Christian community. He, he condemned the leaders in it. He didn't condemn the ones that were out there struggling and wrestling and sinning. But trying not to, he gave grace to them. And and he he would confront, in a very gentle, loving way, sin. But he he condemned the leaders who were doing the condemning of others and who were acting like they had their lives together. So what you're looking at there is a lack of authenticity, a lack of truly seeking God, and trying to put other people under their burden of what their sense of righteousness was. If you translate that up to today, then I think it is that Christ is not out there condemning the world. Because over and over again, he said, my purpose is not to condemn, but to save. We don't get that because we condemn. Our whole thrust today as a broad-brush community is to condemn. It, it's, I, there's nothing that stresses me more today than the Christian community and what we're doing. I mean I'm upset by the liberal, um, you know, gay community, uh, people who are, you know, throw caution to the wind, but they're lost. He came to save them. And, and, and what do we expect from them? They're lost. What do we expect from the church? Going out and loving them and living with authenticity and humility. There is no humility in the church that the world sees today. Well, this was part of his revolution, is that he, he exactly what you're saying, he went to their need. He didn't go to their presenting issue, unless it was the need or the problem. He went to the heart. And that's why he didn't judge the external behaviors. He went to the need and the heart. And if we would do that, we would be revolutionaries. And the church, and, and we, people would not see the Christian community as a bunch of hypocrites. I think they see us as hypocrites, rightly so. As as I'm not talking, there are plenty of exceptions to this, but as a broad brush, I understand why they see us as hypocrites, because we come across as fruit inspectors and judges. And over and over again, Christ says, "Don't judge." And people say to me, "Well, Brenda, but we're supposed to judge right and wrong." The problem with that is that. Most Christians have not allowed themselves to be trained by the Holy Spirit to be able to love the sinner, condemn the sin, and love the sinner. We're supposed to judge other Christians. Yeah, and we can tr- judge and act, but we must love the sinner, and we must confront, as as you're suggesting, fellow Christians who are. Behaving in ways they're not supposed to behave. But also in love. I mean, I think we're. I've seen people in our church who are, I know they're Christians, but they've fallen. Yes. And, and I've seen them confronted too harshly. Yes, I have too. And, and uh, in general, I have seen that. And uh, it, we've got to learn how to be revolutionary in how we do things, and not look like legalists, but not be free gracers that allow for anything. There are stands that we need to take, but it has to be done, Betsy, as you said, in love and in humility, in coming from, I'm a fellow struggler. How can I help you here? No, we don't call it out. And, and I think this is maybe where my distress is coming from. It's not being called out. And you don't, you don't see it in the leadership at the upper echelons of the religious community. And I'm not even calling it the Christian community, though it is. It's the religious wing of the Christian community. We don't call that out. In fact, we participate in it. And, and if we do that, then we're not following Christ. We're not following him in spirit and in truth. And this is the revolution is getting our thinking turned inside out. We, we live in the new covenant of grace, but we live according to the precepts of the old covenant of performance. And, and then the world is gleeful when Christian leaders fall. I don't blame them. I don't. I understand why they are. It's like, okay, good. And now, now, you know, condemn your own self because you've condemned us for doing the same thing that you're doing. That's not a part of the revolution. It, it, are we going to follow Christ? <clears throat> and if we're going to follow him, then we've got to change this mindset. We've got to change how we see people and why Christ has put them in our path and, and what we are to see of them. You know, John three seventeen. he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. In Luke 9, as we've looked at before, you know, where James and John and Peter were... Um, wanting to call forth fire from heaven to destroy this one Samaritan city because they wouldn't receive him. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. I've come not to destroy, but to save. So this community out here that the world sees us railing against, that's full of sin. There's no question about that. It's full of sin. How do we get at that? by lobbing these judgmental grenades at them and hoping that they'll land close enough it'll break them and they'll finally see the error of their ways? Yeah. Finally get it that they're wrong and we're right? And that's exactly what Satan wants us to do. That's exactly. From the very beginning, he pulled out on you when you think about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes. Well, and and the immediate result in Adam and Eve's sin was that uh, Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the devil. Blame began immediately. Scapegoating. <clears throat> so he's talking here about a real radical upheaval of how we see, who we see, and what we see, that this world will not be changed by a legalistic adherence to the law, by a moderate insistence upon the law, the law has proven itself to be woefully inadequate for changing the world. It not only will not change the world at 2,000 years to work at it, it cannot. The only way this world can be changed and the people in it is if God's spirit can touch their spirit. And God's Spirit comes in on the wings of love, of a relationship, and not standing on the street corner or handing out tracts or, or getting right into you know, the four-step plan of salvation. It is, as you've said, Patty, it is creating a relationship with people. Uh, and, and Christ didn't have the time to create relationship, but he, he, he had time over and over again. To look at what the real need of that person was and go to it. That's what we are called to do. As if we're following Him, we're not called to do that. If we're believing only, if we sit at home and just be comfortable and saved, we have our ticket to heaven. I hope everybody else can get one too. <laughs> As we wave, <laughs> going through the countryside. <laughs> See you in the heaven. Hopefully, I've got my ticket. Of a way to minister to them. And it could be something little, it's not always something big. Well, and, and that's again, uh, you know. It's a <coughs> it is a mindset, and it's a mindset <coughs> that Jesus exampled and modeled in John 13, where he washed the feet of the disciples. where he had said, the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve, not to be ministered unto, but to minister to, and as you have seen me do, you do. The revolution, (coughs) pardon me, in our mindset, can be summoned and summarized both in the word servants. We are to serve. Whom are we to serve? One another, in the church, in the community, in the the believing, following uh, community. I think we're to serve the people in the world, to serve them with love, to serve them with gentleness, with grace, with seeking for their need and ministering to their need. We're to serve. Not condemn. But Dave, that is that is so much the hub and the crux of it all. I want to repeat it to make sure it gets picked up on the tape. That if we if we know that we have our eternity secure, and we've got our ticket, it frees us to pour our life out here, to be servants, to sacrifice. <laughs> It does. I mean, that's the great beauty of it. That's exactly what it does. It doesn't matter. So we can give ourselves with abandon. We can throw ourselves out on the water and walk toward the Savior. Now, I didn't know that. The Titanic. There were up on the top of the as it was going down. Oh. Oh. Those were part of the revolution. Those people were. We've lost sight of the revolution. It's a party, and we're on now, not a revolution. And we're just eating and drinking and being merry and having prosperity. it's It's all about us. That is so beautiful. I did not know that those who, uh, many who stayed, if not all, on the Titanic gave up their seats on the uh, the lifeboats were those who knew they were saved. And they gave them up to those who were not saved. That overwhelms me. Somehow we have lost that spark. I mean, There's not a nation on earth that has talked more about God and had emblems and T-shirts and logos about God than this country. And yet, I think we've lost something of uh, authenticity and of truth uh, here that other people did not lose. The people of the Titanic that you just mentioned, they didn't lose it. And I, it, it is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service because he was the dead sacrifice. He was the sacrifice of death. And our reasonable response to that is to choose to become living sacrifices, to pour ourselves out. Paul talks about that. Christ poured his life out as an offering. But Paul talks about how he had poured out, he had spent and was spent. He poured himself out. That is what the revolution is about, is you and me deciding do I want to get on board here? And and if I do, what does that look like? It looks like We don't hoard ourselves the way we tend to in places. We hoard our time, we hoard our schedule, and try to make everything fit. And so God fits into our schedule here in America, in Rockwall, in the Bible Belt, it fits. And then there's a lot of other things that fit around too. So we have this mosaic, which is okay, except that if Christ is at the hub and this revolutionary is at the hub, not just the savior at the hub, but the revolutionary, then his revolutionary ideas will begin to find their way out into us and we will begin to look and act like that and begin to entertain the idea of pouring ourselves out and not hoarding ourselves which is what Christ was talking about here in many ways in John 3, where he says, verse 8, The wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell from where it has come or where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. We, we don't hoard our schedule. We don't hoard our agenda for the day. We may have it out there, but it is subject to change at a moment's notice. We saw that in Christ last week, how his whole ministry was built upon being subject to change at a moment's notice on interruptions. You look over in Acts briefly And you'll see that same sort of mindset with his followers who had gotten on board with the revolution. Uh, Turn to Acts 2. I'm not gonna stay in here long because, but I want us to look at what mere mortals did. Those who decided that they were spirit. That they had been born again. As, As profoundly born of the spirit as we were profoundly born on our birth date. That's what Christ is saying there in John three is that the change in us is as profound as our first birth. If we're born of the flesh, we are flesh. When we're born again, we are spirit. We've morphed into something different. We're no longer caterpillars. So in Acts um, 2, 41, this is the change that came. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. This is the day of Pentecost. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers, their lives were dramatically altered. They continued in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship with each other, fellowship with the community, in breaking of bread and in prayers, their lives became consumed with the spirit. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles and all that believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions. Oh. And their goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. That does not fit here today. That's socialism at best and communism at worst. God forbid that we would become communists. So we can't go there. But that's the the American mindset here. There is something profound here. They didn't care about themselves anymore. They cared about each other. They cared about whether the widows had something to eat. And so they pooled all their money. They became the first Christian bank. Sort of. Don't want to put an American you know, taint on it. But they pooled their money and shared it. It is for, they poured themselves out. They had, and and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he had loaned a book or somebody was talking about something, a student. Dietrich went to his library and got this very valuable book that he had. And he gave it to him and he said, you need this book. And he said, well, it'll take me a while to read it. I'll get it back to you soon as I can. He said, no, it's yours. And he said, I can't take this book. And Dietrich said, what is your understanding of possessions? That's all he did. What do you mean by That is that possessions evidently meant nothing to Bonhoeffer. They were not to be possessed, but to be passed. Be given out. What we've been given is not to be hoarded, but to be given out. And that's what they understood immediately here. That when the Spirit seized them and they became Spirit, they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need, according to the need. And continuing daily with one accord in the temple, they broke bread house to house. Their life was consumed with being spirit now. Nothing else really mattered. They were just in the spirit, in life, celebrating and living and meeting the needs as they came. It was like they were immersed in the moment and fully alive there in the spirit. And you go on, they were praising God, having favor with all the people. Isn't this an interesting concept? Praising God and having favor with all the people. How on earth can a revolutionary have favor with all people? Only if they are loving the way the revolutionary is asked to love. If they're ministering to the needs and seeing people as real people, who are lost and loving the lost so much that they'll do whatever they have to do, try to save them. When does it what? When does it limit? It's the development of the church. Yes, it is. The is the yes. Once it becomes the state religion, it becomes the persecutor. That's exactly right. Under Justinian and, and Constantine, I'm sorry. But uh, I think under uh, Justinian, we first, in about 325, the wife of the emperor, whoever it was, and I may be wrong on who that emperor was. I. I think it's Justin, Justin, but it may not have been. Um, she encouraged him to give freedom um, to the Christians and, and, and not persecute anymore. And then the minute, a few uh, decades later, it actually became the official religion of the state, which is what you're talking about. It was not just this church that persecuted, but then you have the first recorded instance once the church, the Christianity got acknowledged and established, of a riot that broke out, I think it was in Roman, Rome, between Greeks and Christians, and two Greeks were killed. First time. Until then, it was the Christians that were being killed. And the minute we got power, we started using the power. and the shifted to that after the fall especially when there was political system mm-hmm. that's where Becky that is that is so on target and what we are doing today and I, in my opinion is that we are seeking to create a religious political system and in doing that it causes us to be mean-spirited, to wield power, and to wield it in ways that are hurtful to others, not to mention damaging to the kingdom. Because he said, if my kingdom were of this world, of a geopolitical system, then my people would fight. Then my people would do what my people are doing today, fighting. Uh-huh. Yeah. That is the message of his revolution. It's put up your swords. There's a time for a sword, but there's not a time for a sword piercing the, the human heart and, and, and attacking and, and assailing people for their, their false views. We are to wield the sword of the Spirit. And we are to do it by looking at the needs, not seeing them as the enemy, but seeing them as the lost. The lost. It is such a mind-boggling switch that most of us are not going to do it. Most of us are too ensnared in our culture There's not been anyone who loved America more than me. But there came a time many years ago when I realized I could not be American first. I mean, I have loved how this country was founded. It is the only child that was born of the marriage of the Renaissance and the Reformation. Amazing. Amazing. It came at the unique moment in human history it had to come. And we're the product. We're the child. We're the only offspring of the coming together of the Reformation and the Renaissance. And only that could have produced the great minds that produced the Constitution that established this country on the basis of freedom. Freedom to worship God. Not freedom from God, but freedom to worship as we wanted to freedom from tyranny of religion. I have loved this country, but I can't love it first. I can't be trying to save a nation because God doesn't deal with nations like that anymore. In the old covenant, Israel was his nation through which he moved. He now moves through human souls. And so we have, to, we have to get a different mindset that those that rub us the wrong way and make us so upset out there are the lost. They're people who don't understand the love of Christ. And one of the reasons they don't understand the love of Christ is they don't see the love of Christ and those who carry the love of Christ. So we have to change our message if we're to be part of the revolution. It's easy for us not to do that. It's easy for us to settle into how everybody else is doing it. But no one else will then see uh, the greatness of God. They will see the smallness of God as contained in the smallness of his believers. And it requires a shift in each one of us. We have to really consciously look at this and say, where am I off? I guarantee you America has culturalized us and we are off. Each one of us has areas that we have to look at and, and let go of, and adjust if we haven't already done so. We have to constantly be letting the spirit refine our thinking. I'm not going to continue going on here because to do so would, would be too, too long for us to get into. I will get into it next time, Uh, but we look at immediately people began moving wherever the Spirit sent them, wherever the Spirit went, wanted them to go. They moved. It was like they were on call at that point in their life for God. Whenever God nudged and pushed, that's where they went. They didn't ask questions. They didn't say, wait, I can't do this. I can do it between 10 and 1. But I, I can't get there yet. I have too much to do. And it was like nothing. They, they just dropped and went. They had no entanglements except the entanglement of the spirit. And they didn't decide, I mean, we wouldn't decide who it was that we were supposed to encounter. Yes. Like, okay, well, I have time for the waitress today. Maybe <laughs> yeah. I will find the waitress or meet her Yes. And yeah. I determine who needs us yeah. or how they need us. Yeah. <laughs> well I'm talking about the extra tip. Just yeah. uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's not that we determine. Yeah. It's the walking and allowing him to bring forth. Exactly. Exactly. It's his call and it's his draw and it's his nudge. And they were simply available for the wind. Huh? I said it becomes about Yeah, it it became. Yes. Yes. So... <laughs> it, it, and it, it puts everything into adventure. It, it elevates life to a different crescendo. It elevates living to a different crescendo. And it sets us on fire so that we can pass a torch and fan of flame and ignite the world with something holy. You and I are called and asked to be, if we sign up for the revolution, wind walkers. Let's pray. Just ask that you take a minute for this to sink in. Pray for you to ask the Lord what He would have you do, how He would have you be different, where those things are that stand in the way between you and the wind. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wind. Help us to love your wind. To love throwing ourselves into it and running in it. Playing and living in it. Be caught up by it. And taken to places we wouldn't dream. I pray this in the name of Christ, and of the spirit of the wind that lives in us because of him. Amen.